Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 147, Women in Anglo-Saxon England. I remember vaguely, as if through a glass darkly, ranting slightly immoderately against the mild but constant pressure by you lot to cover all that social history stuff, and to abandon, for a time at least, the glorious role of honour that is the history of kings, battles, dates, and such like. As you know, I have a few times bowed to that pressure. Now, I have to tell you that I have the very same trouble over the topic of women. After all, the pages of history are written for much of it mainly by blokes. And it would therefore be a bit more balanced to find some way of getting the odd female character on the stage and to leaven the historical bread with a bit more female flour. All this flowery language, if you'll pardon the pun, probably tells you that there's a problem. The problem is, as my wife will confirm, that what I know about women could be written on the inside of a ping-pong ball and I had to tell you I have large handwriting. And so I tremble, I tremble with fear at the potential for error in this PC wilderness. I will without doubt say the wrong thing in the wrong way. The number of people who listen to this podcast will fall by 50%. I will be the butt of scathing jokes. Worse. My words stand to be measured and judged by my daughter's gentle listener. It is a minefield in which I walk, a valley of death and fear where I bear no staff, no rod to comfort me. But look, I am by nature compliant, so I do what I'm told. I heartily repent of my sins. I'm truly sorry for any previous bad behaviour. So despite the sweat, fear, pain and despair, I'm going to proceed. So where to start with the job of building a picture of the lives of women? 
and the answer, I thought, might be to start at the very beginning, of the history of England, that is, with the Saxon invasions of the 6th century. At this point, I should come clean. Normally, I do my very best to make sure I've got a variety of different views on a topic, but in this case, although I've looked around, I've found one book far and away the best, most balanced and most convincing, and so I've been heavily reliant on it. The book's by Henrietta Laser, Medieval Women. So for those of you who want to find out more, I can heartily recommend it as further reading. In talking about the early history of women in England, the historian, whether of the professional or shed variety, has a cast-iron opportunity to bleat about the lack of information, potential to misinterpret, and all that sort of thing. So let's just take that as read. I'm going to talk, it could all be tripe, OK? And one more thing. I've done the normal rambling on thing, so we'll have to wait for next time to have the weekly word back. Again, sorry on all. From the early invasions, then, we're simply talking about what we can find out from the early burials. And seriously, all you can really do is note what's been found. Any further conclusion is then dangerous. What you can conclude quickly enough is that the goods found in men and women's graves were different. So there's a thing. Women's clothing was always belted or girdled, and it became a fashion to attach chatelain chains to said belt or girdle, and so they're a common object. Equally common are knives, and in this case not for sticking into other people, but rather the penknife kind of use and level. Other commonly found articles include keys and fire steels, which is when we can maybe start to get speculative and suggest that the inclusion of these kinds of grave goods may be symbolic of women's role as guardians of the household and its possessions, of which the key and the hearth are powerful symbols. Incidentally, when it comes to keys, don't think of the kind of thing we carry around these days. A key was not to turn locks, but simply to raise a latch through a door. Another very common article is the thread box. These are tiny boxes in which scraps of material or threads or herbs were found. One of them, from 7th century Kent, contains the earliest known fragment of silk ever to be found in England. Really, no one knows what thread boxes were for. Well, they may be religious. You know, this is the thread from the clothes of John the Baptist, that sort of thing. Maybe they were first aid boxes with medicinal herbs to help the cunning woman heal. But these things are absolutely tiny, so it's vanishingly unlikely that they're practical thread boxes for sewing. But who knows? It could be that thread boxes are actually replacements for a favourite object that disappear from graves, but appeared frequently in the pagan Anglo-Saxon graves of women, namely crystal balls, of which, again, despite a multiplicity of theories, no one really has a clue about their use. But both of these things link to a tradition and faint echoes we have of the mystical power of women, a slightly hidden, mysterious and arcane power. The crystal balls appear to have no function, so what does that suggest? The thread boxes are linked with healing, which may be magical in nature. And there is a mysticism, a white magic attached to the traditional female role of spinning and weaving. There's a nicely suspicious Christian penitential from the 11th century, which refers disapprovingly to the incantations of women as they weave. In Anglo-Saxon medicine, the activity of spinning and weaving is connected with healing. So, for pains in the jaw, for example... 
The resolution is as follows. Take the spindle with which a woman spins, bind around his neck with a woollen thread, and rinse inside with hot goat's milk, which has got to beat a lightly boiled aspirin. The arrival of Christianity has an interesting impact on the role of women. Now, for the pagan Anglo-Saxon male, Christianity was something of a problem. Explaining to a warrior, used to the idea that his job was to kill, maim, destroy and steal, that from now on he should turn the other cheek and be meek, mild and humble, was something of a tricky sell. It was mega confusing for kings. After all, a king's very reason for existence was to look after his people and help them grow in power and influence. There's the story of King Siebert of East Anglia, the son of Reedwold, the very pagan Bretwolder found at Sutton Hoo. Siegbert was converted and tried to escape this rather nasty dilemma by becoming a monk, only to then find himself dragged out onto the battlefield out of the monastery. Resolutely, he refused to carry arms. As a result, his army was crushed, and the last pagan hero, Pender of the Mercians, happily fulfilled his idiom by having him killed. But women had a role which gave them no such dilemma, and they seemed to have taken on Christianity with unalloyed enthusiasm. It's also clear that women played a critical role in the spread of Christianity. Since they faced less of a dilemma about how Christianity affected their role, you see plenty of examples of how it's a Christian marriage that brings a king and a kingdom to conversion. So we'll take one example, that absolutely crucial one of Ethelbert of Kent in the 6th century. At the time, Kent was the leading Anglo-Saxon kingdom, and its closeness to the continent in the southeast of England lent it further power and influence. Ethelbert accepted missionaries into his kingdom from the continent, though he was alarmed that they might be magicians come to bewitch him. This was all part of a marriage that was a big deal for Ethelbert, his marriage to a Frankish princess, Bertha. Through this marriage, the king of a backwards kingdom on a soggy island acquired a thin patina of the culture and learning of the continental inheritors of the mantle of the Roman Empire. But part of the deal was that Bertha would continue to practice her religion, i.e. Christianity. And in due course, it's through Bertha that Ethelbert is converted. It is through their daughter that Edwin, king of Northumbria, is converted. Indeed, in the early centuries of Christianity, Christianity was a route to power and influence for women, every bit as important as it was for men. It was a route to power and influence that still relied on the normal constraints of class. There was no point trying to become a saint or an abbess if you'd been born on the wrong side of the tracks. But as long as you were basically eligible, abbesses could wield considerable power in Anglo-Saxon times. In fact, in Anglo-Saxon days, there were as many joint monastic institutions, so monks and nuns, and it was just as likely for their boss to be an abbess as it was for it to be an abbot. So let us use the example of Hild. We know about Hild because she had a fan in the Venerable Bede, author, of course, of the ecclesiastical history of the English people. Hild, or Saint Hild, as she would be known, had no need for social climbing, since she was the daughter of a Daran princess. Dara, for those of you with superb memories, was the ancient kingdom which, along with Bernicia, became Northumbria. But Hild's family fell on hard times when her father was poisoned, and despite being the grand-niece of the Northumbrian king, Edwin, Hild appeared in exile in East Anglia along with her sister, Hearswith. 
either at this time or before. It looks as though Hild may have been married and widowed, but it's difficult to be sure. But it does look as though she and her sister were close and seem to be choosing to stay together. Now, I have observed that I know absolutely nothing of women, but we did have a party for my daughter recently, and I did notice how as many as five of them would go into our very small loo together at the same time, something completely alien to the male mind. Hey, pal, just going to the loo, want to join me? No. Anyway, maybe the Anglo-Saxon equivalent was going to the nunnery together, because that's what Hearswith and Hild were planning to do, and on the continent to boot when the great Celtic Christian missionary and leader, Bishop Aidan, intervened and persuaded her to stay and return to Northumbria. Hild became the abbess of Hartlepool, and then the double, i.e. male and female, institution of Whitby. Now, we tend, with some justification, to think of monasteries in terms of a retreat from the world, for those strong enough to reject earthly pleasures and attractions. But actually... In those early days of Christianity, in much the same way as a castle is as much about offence as it is of defence, the new monastic foundations were as much about advancing the conversion of the pagan as they were about withdrawing from the world. So Hild's role, and other abbesses like her, was pivotal in advancing the cause of Christianity and of the rulers who'd been converted. So Hild had established her reputation, The starry-eyed Bede waxed lyrical about what Hild achieved at Whitby, where not only ordinary people, but also kings and princes, sometimes sought and received her counsel when in difficulties. Her reputation grew. In 664, Whitby was the scene of the famous synod, where at last they nailed the rules around the time of Easter. Can't say it's a solution with the benefit of simplicity, but it is a solution with the benefit of longevity. And it was where Hild, polymath that she was, inspired the cowherd Cadmon to write the first Anglo-Saxon poem. In 674, she was afflicted by an illness that in 680 finally killed her. And by the 8th century, her cult of sainthood was well established. Her remains tipped up in Glastonbury, and it is Hild, after whom St Hilda's College in Oxford is named. There are just a few things to pull out of Hild's life about the early Anglo-Saxon world and the transition from pagan to Christian society. The first is to note that Hild and other abbesses were people of position and power. They were part of the body politic. And no concessions seem to have been felt to need to be made to the fact that she's a woman. Second, she's clearly seen in a position of authority over male colleagues, both directly as the abbess of a double institution and indirectly, as a teacher admired and looked up to by men and women correspondents. Now, Hild may be something of an exception. Who knows? The lack of sources doesn't help us. But the point here is the way she's viewed in contemporary writing. She's not seen as odd or unusual. There are other examples which support the view that Hild's authority and role in society was not unusual. The abbess Lioba, for example, in the early 8th century, was celebrated for her learning and wisdom, and no self-respecting Anglo-Saxon royal family could be without their female saint. There is a constant danger of an oversimplified story of a downward progression of the role of women from pagan freedom through changing Anglo-Saxon times as Christianity becomes established to Norman servitude.
the modern view seems to be, this is not a safe conclusion. It's just that there are differences. We shouldn't think about better or worse, just different. So, in these differences, let us note another thing about Hild. She is nowhere described as a virgin. This might seem like an odd and indeed rather personal thing for me to say. However, as I'm sure many of you will be aware, and that we'll talk about in some future hideous episode that I can't claim to be looking forward to, it's the Virgin Mary that becomes the model of womanhood to which Christian society turns. For Bede and Anglo-Saxon England, virginity, both male and female, is important, and the Christian confusion about sex well on its way into society, but it seems not to be the dominant theme. It was perfectly possible to be extolling Hild for her learning, wisdom, authority and her maternal influence and ability to inspire her acolytes and protégés. But as time goes by, Christian themes become stronger, of course. Archbishop Theodore, an appointment from the continent, disapproved of double monasteries and they gradually disappear. In law codes, there's a gradual movement too towards Christian themes. But then the whole matter of interpreting the early Anglo-Saxon law codes is fraught with danger. They have been interpreted every way imaginable. The very existence of the early codes is a matter of debate and how much they reflected reality or aspiration. So, Ethelbert of Kent again is the first to have published the law code and the very first clause is about protection of the church which is hugely significant because it was the church that could provide the only scribes and here was their big chance to influence the way the conversation went and make sure if nothing else that their wealth and newly found lands were thoroughly protected. The second point to make is that the early codes very much reflect the pagan society that they were moving from every bit as much and in fact probably more than the Christian society that they're moving towards. But they are very probably an attempt to make that movement quicker. The law codes essentially set a price on crime in the form of the Weregild. So crudely, you interpret Weregilds as price or you can see them as a fine. In Ethelbert's code, there are clauses about the amount of Weregild that should be paid in different circumstances. And this has been interpreted as there being a price, i.e. if a man wanted to abduct a female slave, it had cost 50 shillings effectively. Or if you slept, quote, with a maiden belonging to the king, that would be 50 shillings also, please. Thank you very much. Ching. And so the argument runs that these early societies effectively condoned this behaviour of buying and selling women almost. The alternative view, which seems more sensible to me, is that this is a slightly warped way of looking at things. What the church and these early kings are trying to do is move society away from violence as the answer to crime and to position the king as the only giver of justice, with all the financial, political and moral benefits that entailed. So it's not that sleeping with the king's maiden is available as an option on a smorgasbord of delicacies and sins, but rather, if you did step out of line and do the wrong thing, there'd be a fine rather than violence. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. 
Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There is a much-debated clause relating to the status of women in Anglo-Saxon England in the codes. This goes like this. If a freeman lies with the wife of another freeman, he shall pay his or her weirgeld and get another wife with his own money and bring her to the other man's home. Which is interesting. Now, there are positive spins you can put on this. Adultery used to be accompanied by all manner of hideous torture, and however good or bad this is, this seems rather less violent as a punishment. And the clause is probably most concerned actually with property, so it's as much with the protection of the women involved as the men, i.e. when a couple got married, the man was required to present his new wife with the Morgan Gifu, money or property that would remain the wife's whatever happened to the marriage. This clause makes sure that this continues to happen. So with all those good things said, however, it's very difficult to avoid the conclusion that there is more than an element of ownership here of women by husbands. Clause 57 of the Laws of Ina of Wessex, which we haven't talked about since episode 3 a long time ago, are pretty clear that a woman's duty is to, quote, obey her lord. But having said that, it's also then been pointed out that ownership and belonging in both pagan and Christian society was just a fact of life. It's very clear from the codes that men also belonged to their lords and that not belonging meant you were not part of normal society. I'm not sure that makes it any better, of course, but you can look also on the female role in marriage in a similar way. The studies of kinship suggest very much that women circulate and are exchanged between clans and kinship groups. But does that need to be a negative thing? The studies show that while lineage was very much male, it was the woman that provided and made the connections. It's also worth noting that the lord noted in Ina's laws does not have to be a man. Lordship, as we've seen with Hild, was just as much the preserve of women. Clause 77 of Ethelbert's Code concentrates on the man's right to return a, quote, fraudulent woman. But in so doing, actually lays out the clear rights of women to leave their husband. Basically, a wife is free to leave and takes half the goods and the children with her. Other clauses take great care to make sure that when a man died, his children were looked after, but equally that the wife and mother were also provided for. All of which is all very well, the general tenet being that in early Anglo-Saxon England, women, although without doubt often or even usually under control of men, the legal and social framework was more supportive than you might suppose. Women had control over their own possessions and estate, and were protected under law and in marriage, and in certain contexts had the potential to acquire political and social influence and lordship. The literature of the time, such as survives, also often presents a different picture of women's role to the one we assume. If you, like me, started all of this deeply uncomfortable discussion thinking that the model for womanhood of the time would be the Virgin Mary, chaste, passive, maternal, compliant, peacemaking... Henrietta Leyser surveys four poems in her book, Beowulf, Elena, Judith and Juliana. 
with the aim of looking to literature to understand what kind of role models women were presented with. So the main memory I would have of Beowulf, just to start there, is that it's all about the warrior ethic, with the images of women largely restricted to the paranormal in Grendel's mother, and to a large extent it is. But there is the role of the queen, Waltheof. And it's actually very much more than a bit part. It is to Waltheof, quote, the ring-bejeweled queen, distinguished for the quality of her mind, that Beowulf promises that he will kill Grendel. The king, Hrothgar, and the queen, Waltheof, sit side by side in Heriot. Waltheof is the symbol of unity. By her marriage to Hrothgar, she's brought together two previously warring kin. She plays an active part in the court, dispensing treasure, and demands loyalty from the thanes of the hall as much as she owes loyalty to her king. It is Waltheof who incites by her words Beowulf to make his promise to slay the monster. It is Waltheof who rewards the hero for delivering on his promise. The active and often equal role of the Queen in Anglo-Saxon England has confirming parallels in the political history of the period. So think, for example, of Queen Saxburg, who in 672 reigned after the death of her husband, Chenwil. Think of Judith, Scion of the Carolingian dynasty, installed as queen in her own right through an elaborate ceremony when she married Ethelwulf, king of Wessex. With Edgar, the tradition of a queen with recognised equivalent if not equal powers becomes embedded with the coronation of Elthrith, anointed in the same way as the king. And the history of late Anglo-Saxon England is littered with powerful women playing an integral part in court politics. Elthrith, who probably has Edward murdered so that her useless son, Ethelred, can gain the throne. Emma of Normandy, who marries two kings and acquiesces in the death of one of her sons in order to see another inherit, and is in turn rejected by another of her sons, Edward the Confessor. Very briefly then, the story of Elena, Juliana and Judith from the 9th and 10th centuries. Elena's story is set against the background of her son, who is the Emperor Constantine. She searches for the true cross, and in the process interrogates and forces the submission of one Judas to reveal its location by the force of her words. Juliana's story is one of martyrdom, refusing to marry the pagan Eleusis despite the command of the pagan emperor. Tempted by the devil, Juliana defeats him through her argument and passion, but having beaten him, then dies a martyr's death. And finally, Judith's story opens with her capture by the Assyrians and called forward to satisfy the wicked ways of the drunken bestial Assyrian prince, she cuts off his head, returns to the Israelites and in a rousing speech commands them to attack and defeat the Assyrians, which they, of course, dutifully do. In these stories, women are presented with far greater variety than the later image of the Virgin. In the images of women presented in the stories from the Anglo-Saxon age, all of them are united by the power of their words. In the absence of physical prowess, it's the talents of their mind that conquers and commands. All of them are described as wise. All of them have an active, eloquent voice. And actually, even if we go back to the Virgin Mary, in early Christianity, she's not always the passive, silent peacemaker. So in 672, she's the battle queen, defending the walls of Constantinople. In Anglo-Saxon poems, 
she's by no means a passive figure. So, for example, persuading Joseph to accept the fact of her virgin motherhood. But Christianity, as it gained in confidence and stability, did begin to change the rules and practice around marriage and attitudes to sex and attitudes to women. I mentioned Archbishop Theodore just now, and his penitential of the 8th century suggests how those rules began to change as the more widely accepted practices of Christendom become embedded in Anglo-Saxon England. So Theodore began to insist on a whole load of stuff that was really pretty incomprehensible to the Anglo-Saxons, and even with the faithful, such as St Boniface, led to confused and slightly incredulous inquiries of the Pope. So a few examples of these. No sex during Lent and for three days before communion. Forbidding a man to see his wife naked. Rather tellingly, in early Anglo-Saxon England, there was only one word for sex. It took the church and its teaching for the invention of two more words for wrongful or unlawful sex. None of this is specifically about women, of course, but affected men equally. And the church's teachings drove wider social changes as well. For example, the church emphasised marrying outside the kinship group rather than inside it, as had previously been the norm. The rules of consanguinity, i.e. no marriage within seven degrees of blood relationship, had always been a struggle for the Anglo-Saxons. But new rules, like a ban on marriage between completely unrelated godparents who are tied only by a spiritual relationship, were completely baffling to them. Whereas a woman, or indeed a man, had been able to walk away from a marriage catered for under law, now marriage was by and large indissoluble. It took a while for these rules to really bite and become accepted practice. It's important to remember that the traffic wasn't all one way, i.e. towards increasing rights for men and less for women. It was the church, for example, that insisted on the right of women to choose their husband, however much parents might have fought against such freedom. But by later Anglo-Saxon England, the new rules were becoming thoroughly embedded. And although they affected both men and women, you can't avoid the conclusion that to the modern mind, women came out of it worse. So, let's quote a few of these. The idea of ritual purity rather takes over in the church, and this has an impact on women. So, menstruating women, ruled Theodore, were unclean and should not be allowed to take communion. And this is a view that hardens, and the idea of the ritual purity of mass gathers ground with all kinds of impacts, such as the role of the priest that Wycliffe would object to so strongly, but also that women should be excluded from helping in the mass. Here's another one. Adultery by the wife, but not by the man, now counted as grounds for separation. Bear in mind that way back in Old Saxony, Things were even worse, and the consequences for women of adultery had been far worse than in Anglo-Saxon England, but even so, Knut's law of the 11th century does not make pretty reading. If a woman during her husband's life commits adultery with another man, her legal husband is to have all her property, and she is to lose her nose and ears. Meanwhile, if the husband did want to get back together again, the law is equally uncompromising. It's the man's right to choose the terms on which they'll give it another go. So, to quote, Her punishment does not belong to the clergy, it belongs to her own husband. One further example, then, of how attitudes to women changed through the Anglo-Saxon age. 
There's an old version of Genesis written in the early Anglo-Saxon age, where the telling of the story of Eve is subtly different to that which you get later. And remember that by the 11th century, i.e. much later, attitudes to women were deeply affected by the church's view that Eve, and therefore women, were the source of original sin, and that it was through women's weakness that evil entered the world. But this earlier translation presented Eve's actions not as weakness, but very much in terms of duty. Her duty to represent what she believed was the word of God to an unbelieving and therefore non-compliant Adam, and to play the role of peacemaker between God and Adam. It's an interesting example of the way in which attitudes changed as the church no longer had to sell itself to a newly converted and converting population, but now sought to regulate that population according to increasingly flexible rules and sets of beliefs. All of these changes to the rights of women sound pretty outrageous to the modern ear, and no doubt they are. However, it's not clear that this is the way that women at the time would have viewed all of this. By the 11th century, and at the end of Anglo-Saxon England, all law came from God. And pretty much everyone believed and accepted this, man or woman. So the likelihood is, in fact, that both women and men were less concerned about the rights and wrongs of all of this, and more concerned to make sure that when they reached the Day of Judgment, they would not be found wanting. So once again I find that I have rattled on and really don't have the room for a weekly word, so instead let me tell you a riddle. I'm going to tell you about riddles because I've been talking about my beloved Anglo-Saxons and the Anglo-Saxons did love a riddle. And maybe the English love of their language dates from here, dunno. But OK, imagine please a village longhouse, the cold outside, the fire in the centre and the smoke and imagine the shouting and yelling as one of the men or women challenged the other to a word duel over their ale. Most Anglo-Saxon riddles that we know about come from one source, the Exeter Book, which was written late 10th or early 11th centuries. They're basically short poems which describe an object in a mysterious way, and although there are some educational ones, most of them are just designed for entertainment and a bit of fun. One of the favourite techniques is to build up two possible solutions to the puzzle as it goes on. And of course, in a number of cases, one of the possible solutions is frankly filthy. You won't be surprised to learn that I'm going to choose one of those. So here is an Anglo-Saxon riddle which I'll tell you at the end of the cast. I will also post it on the website so that you can read through it and you can then provide answers if you wish. And next time, I'll tell you what it is. Next time, as it happens, is a couple of weeks away. It's my week off next week. But you need not be on your own, for we will have the return of an old History of England favourite, Melisande, who, to follow up the female theme, has done an episode on the pitfalls of being a medieval queen. I've no doubt you'll enjoy that, and in the meantime, I have donators to thank to boot. So, to Christopher, Sam, Christian, Burnt, welcome back Burnt, Mary, Oak, Robert and Raymond, thank you so much. And so now to that foul-mouthed riddle, and if you don't like sexual innuendo, turn away now. I'm a wonderful thing, a joy to women, to neighbours useful. I injure no one who lives in a village save only my slayer. I stand up high and steep over the bed. Underneath I'm shaggy. Sometimes ventures a young and handsome peasant's daughter, a maiden proud to lay hold on me. She seizes me red and plunders my head, fixes on me fast, 
feels straightway what meeting me means when she thus approaches a curly-haired woman. Wet is that eye. Good luck, everyone, and have a great fortnight. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.